0: Thanks to LinkedIn for supporting this week's Motley Fool Money. LinkedIn Jobs screens candidates with the hard and soft skills you're looking for so you can hire the right person fast. Find the right person with LinkedIn Jobs. Get $50 off your first job post at linkedin.com slash fool.
1: Everybody needs money. That's why they call it money. The
0: best thing.
1: From Fool Global Headquarters, this is Motley Fool Money.
0: It's the Motley Fool Money Radio Show. I'm Chris Hill. Joining me in studio this week, senior analyst Jason Moser, Andy Cross, and Aaron Bush. Good to see you as always, gentlemen. Hey, Hello. hey Chris. We've got the latest earnings from Wall Street. We'll talk with best selling author Bob Sutton about how successful companies scale their businesses. And as always, we'll give you an inside look at the stocks on our radar. But we begin with big retail. Costco's first quarter sales came in lower than expected. Management put part of the blame on Thanksgiving being so late this year. Andy, I'm not indifferent to how the calendar affects businesses, but I don't think Thanksgiving being late in the year had anything to do with Costco's website being slow this quarter.
2: Well, that is true, Chris. <laughs> they did have a little trouble on their website during uh, the Black Friday Thanksgiving period. But Big Retail is right, Chris. They, they're they so close to 100 million cardholders. They're at $99.9 million, up from $98.5 million at the end of the fourth quarter of last year. Um, overall, it was a pretty nice quarter from my perspective. Total sales up 5.6%, membership fee income up 6.1%. Renewal rate still very strong at 9- 90, almost ninety percent. Um, when you look across the world, about flat with last year. Um, their executive memberships uh, are now at twenty-one point four million. That was up a little bit from uh, the end of the year. Uh, comp sales up five percent. Chris, you mentioned the website. So they d- the Thanksgiving period did fall out of the, the comp period, but they also report monthly kind of numbers. So we, we knew what they were looking at, and overall, it was still the five to six percent of comp store growth. Some nice e-commerce business growth, but they did leave some on. The table I talked about at the call—they, their website problems—did um, leave a little bit of. E-commerce was up very nicely, but it could have been up a little better. Had their website performed a little better during the holiday period?
1: Yeah, I've always wondered. I mean, I think Costco is a great example of one of those membership models that just is just proven to be so successful over time. And over this past year, I can't believe this. We joined Costco for the first time ever. I mean, we were never Costco memberships. I'm sorry, Mac, uh, but as, <laughs> as I mentioned before, we're doing some bathroom renovations uh, at home, and we thought maybe having that membership, we could you know shop around it turned out we didn't use it at all. So, I'm going to be interested to see, in a year, will we renew that membership? And really, for Costco, that is the business, right? It is those members. Um, so, it's just going to be noteworthy to see not only those membership renewals, which they've historically just maintained so nicely, but also how high they can keep pushing that price. Because it does seem like we're running into a world where even Prime memberships are coming under fire now for uh, yeah, how, how pricey they can be perceived. You know,
2: the other really interesting thing about the call is they got asked the question about order online pickup, especially with the success we've seen that at Target and Walmart, for example. And they said it's just not something they're focused on. They look at it, they actually said, the CFO actually said it kind of is a head-scratcher to us, considering the way that people shop at Costco. So, they have no intention of going aggressively after
1: that. They're just kind of watching it because of that experience, shop out of Costco. I feel like maybe in in school, there's some secret class where they teach people how to be Costco shoppers. I'm just always astounded by how full those parking lots are and how many people use Costco uh, for their regular shopping. I mean, it's a wonderful deal, it's tremendous value, don't get me wrong. But, I mean, you're not born knowing that, right? I mean, it's taught somewhere at some point, right?
0: Yeah, and people appreciate it, too. Apparently. Shares of software maker Adobe hitting an all-time high this week. Fourth quarter profits and revenue came in higher than expected, and Adobe getting higher subscriptions in that core digital media business, Jason.
1: Yeah. I think oftentimes investors will overlook bigger companies that they feel like maybe the companies have grown so big that the low-hanging fruit has been picked, the returns aren't there for investors, and it's not a worthwhile investment. I think Adobe is a great example of a company that just blows this idea completely out of the water. Um, I mean, when you look at a lot of the numbers that they're chalking up, it's really just astounding for 140 $140-plus billion market cap. Quarter-four revenue uh, was up 21% from a year ago, non-gap earnings per share up 25%. Uh, I, you know, I'm really excited about the Adobe Aero platform they're mm-hmm. developing for augmented and virtual and mixed reality. Uh, it, it was really neat to see how uh, much focus on the Document Cloud there was in the call. Though Document Cloud revenue for the quarter of 340 million uh, was up 31 percent from a year ago, and 1.22 billion for the year that was up 25 percent. So you know, we, we talk a lot about DocuSign on this show, and we talk about their competition in the space. Adobe is one of their big competitors, uh, very similar sized businesses. When you talk about what they're focusing on. DocuSign revenue was up forty percent for the quarter last year for context. So, so there's there's clearly some some jockeying going on there in that space. Um, I, you know, I'm making my bold, reckless prediction right here, right now for you three around this Brilliant. table and all Ooh. of our listeners. I think 2020 Adobe buys DocuSign because that would give them access to the small and medium sized businesses that really uh, have taken to DocuSign's product offering so early.
0: Well, in a couple of weeks, we'll have our preview show for 2020, so you'll need to come up with a different reckless prediction for that. (laughs) Well, I mean, I'm
1: sure people will probably forget what I just said (laughs) anyway, and I can just use it again, (laughs) right?
3: Yeah, so this is a comment that's less about Adobe and more about software in general. But I've told Jamo this a couple of times. I keep on forgetting that Adobe is like a $150 billion (laughs) (laughs) business. Isn't that just nuts? Um, And to me, it's a good reminder um, that some software companies are just going to be massive, And when we look out across a lot of the other smaller players, like DocuSign is a $10 billion business or so. Um, A lot of these businesses that a lot of investors are saying are overvalued, are actually going to turn into multi-baggers because companies like Adobe are showing that it's possible, and so that that's exciting to me. Well,
2: it's not just a software company, but it's an exceptionally profitable software company, and, yeah. and, and with margins near thirty percent, returns on capital close to thirty percent too. So this is a business, like you said, uh, Aaron, that you just sometimes doesn't get the respect that it deserves, because while it's been around a long time, the way they've totally changed their business and really focus on the cloud
1: and new innovations is going to drive that business forward. Yeah, the reliability of the subscription revenue and the focus on their market, that creative market that they focus on, as long as they keep investing in bringing new and awesome products and services for people yeah. to use, people are going to keep re-upping. They're going to recognize a little pricing power as time goes on, and this investment should just continue to really perform, I, th- I think, for you know, Foolish investors that take that long-term uh, view.
0: Same-store sales for GameStop fell 23% in the third quarter. Coincidentally, that is roughly the same amount that the stock fell this week. Uh, Aaron, Ugh. the video game industry is booming. This is a video game (laughs) retailer. How is it this
3: bad? So, I'm about to go off right now, so bear with me. (laughs) This situation is so bad that, in a lot of ways, you can't help but laugh at the absurdity of of what's going on. So, let's set the stage. The future of video games is going to be entirely digital. GameStop is a physical store that sells mainly physical goods. Red flag. They have over 5,000 stores, which, for those counting, is more than the number of Chipotles and Chick-fil-A's combined. <laughs> and every attempt to pivot they've ever taken—buying a mobile phone company, buying like a in-in browser like gaming business—they've all emphatically failed. Oh yeah, and their net debt is three times their market cap right yeah. now. So yeah, that, that's setting the stage. And there is some cyclicality in the gaming business. Obviously, when your same store sales go down twenty something percent, that's a bit more than cyclicality. Um, and and I'll also say that GameStop has gone through a pretty insane executive turnover. It's not getting better. The most recent CEO, the current one, George Sherman, who started in April, is acting like he has absolutely no clue how to run a business. So so check this out. Since July, GameStop has repurchased a third of the company's stock.
0: Well, it's cheap now.
3: Well, <laughs> so. So I don't know. I just like like George. Like, what the heck are you doing, man? (laughs) Like, like, are you trying to kill your own company? Like, you're getting paid millions of dollars to, to, (laughs) to just buy back your stock. Like this company, and like this is something like all investors, all activists, like all board members, just like need to hear. This company is overextended. It's on the wrong side of history. It's over leveraged. And instead of putting their cash flows. To work to save the business, they're not even like handing it out in dividends to shareholders anymore. They're literally just lying money, lighting money on fire to repurchase shares of a business that will die unless they spend that money some other way. So yeah, maybe maybe at this point they can't save themselves. They've shot themselves in the foot like a while ago and are already bleeding out. Um, it, it's it's just so bad. So if they want to save themselves they got to get rid of this guy as quickly as possible. They need to close down their underperforming stores as quickly as possible, and they need to start experimenting with, like, alternative floor plans as quickly as they possibly can to become a place that doesn't just sell gaming goods but sells gaming experiences. So whether that means partnering with, like, amateur esports league startups that are doing cool location based like VR type stuff essentially they needed to do everything they can to make their locations build community showcase the future and in simplest terms just be a place where people want to be they're just failing and it's so like abysmal
0: so we got some other news in the industry this week and yeah. that is we got some more details on Microsoft's next generation Xbox which to this point had been referred to as Project Scarlet so what details are most exciting to you, and why do we have to wait a year for this? Because that was the other thing I noticed. Like, oh, we got some more details. It's like, yeah, it's basically uh, December 2020.
3: Yeah, so both the the new Xbox and the new PlayStation, the PlayStation 5, will come out. Um, around holidays the next year. And typically, console cycles are pretty long anyway, so it's not that surprising that people are starting to to talk about things earlier than than normal. But I also think with consoles, we're going to start seeing them start to reflect more like phone plans, where you have like upgrades and you start paying them off monthly. And what they're doing, they're framing this up as like the Series X. And I expect in the same way that they launched the Xbox One and then had the Xbox One X and One S, that this will just be a series that gets updated slowly over time so that people won't have to wait so long to get the next version going forward.
0: Well if you this. want, Microsoft CEO uh, Satya Nadella can just sort of go through his furniture, find some change, buy GameStop, <laughs> no, yeah. and then they'll have a showcase <laughs> for the new uh, the new Xbox. I think Satya's a little smarter than that. <laughs> Coming up, we will dip into the full mailbag and give you a few stocks for your watch list. Stay right here. You're listening to Motley Fool Money. As always, people on the program may have interest in the stocks they talk about, and the Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against, so don't buy or sell stocks based solely on what you hear. Welcome back to Motley Fool Money. Chris Hill here in studio with Jason Moser, Andy Cross, and Aaron Bush. Stitch Fix on the rise. The company broke even in the first quarter. but. Wall Street was expecting a loss. So, that was good enough to send the stock up 10%, Andy.
2: Yeah, a little different than last quarter when we saw the reverse uh, and the stock was down pretty big on the day of their announcement. Active client counts up 17%. That's one number I watch pretty closely. And it's, it's been a right around there for the past couple of quarters. That's good. Um, net revenue was up 21%, which I think has gotten a lot of people excited. The big kind of innovation they've been pushing over the last few quarters is are these direct buy initiatives. So, shop your looks, shop your colors. They continue to see some nice results with these tests as they go out, so it allows people not necessarily to have to always depend on these shipments that they get from their stylists, but actually they can go on and, through some improved algorithms, make these purchases directly. And that's starting to have a little bit of an impact. They raised some guidance for the year after this quarter. So, the stock really had not performed very well over the last few um, uh, months, and we saw
0: that rebound uh, this quarter. Lululemon's same-store sales in the third quarter were up 17, percent but that just wasn't good enough for investors. Jason and the stock down
1: four percent on the report. Lululemon's getting it done. Well, yeah, we wouldn't have said this probably a couple of years ago, certainly a few years ago. But the big, the biggest risk for a stock like uh, like this right now is valuation, because when you look at the business, it really is. Uh, firing on all cylinders. Hey, Ron, how you doing? Uh, the valuation doesn't leave a lot of room for for a hiccup, and we know in this space that's likely to come at some point, but I don't think that's anything that owners of the business should be worried about today. Um, I mean, when you look at the numbers that they continue to chalk up there, top line growth of 23%, comps up 17%. Direct and consumer now represents 27 percent of total sales. They did pull back on top line guidance for the year just slightly, uh, which probably led to a little bit of the market's trepidation. And I did notice inventory levels are creeping up there a little bit. It's so it's nothing terribly concerning, but we should keep an eye on it as we watch the margin picture uh, continue to unfold. Uh, but but for 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 now, I think this is a business that just continues to impress. And like Under Armour, we talk about they've got great products. This is what happens when you have great products and you run a great business. So, Kevin Plank, why don't you take some notes? Radio at fool.com
0: is our email address. Question from Rob in Massachusetts. He writes, I'm 33 years old, I've been investing for a little over a year and really enjoying myself. Recently, I came across some amazing numbers in regard to the aging population in the U.S. and the number of people who need or will be needing some sort of incontinence product. How do I invest in this market opportunity? Thanks for all the great shows. I'm a cheesemaker, and The Motley Fool podcast keep me well-occupied during, lo- during the long hours of washing Cheeses. Uh, thank you for a great question, Rob, and thank you for making cheese one of the great products in the world. Uh, what's the move here, Andy?
2: Yeah, I think sticking with the probably the big, large consumer product goods companies like Kimberly Clark, I think is one. Though um, that's probably the play. This is this is a, it is definitely a market of um, that is getting more and more attention uh, to help um, older citizens. So I think it's probably bigger on the consumer side on the the big players like Kimberly-Clark.
3: Yeah, I have absolutely no idea how to capitalize on this trend. Never thought about it before. Andy's probably right. But I sense a a deeper, darker conspiracy here. Does anybody find it ironic that a cheesemonger, the creator of one of the least lactose-friendly foods, is curious about profiting from products that will only benefit from lactose intolerance. (laughs) So, I don't know. I'm thinking that Big Cheese is trying to profit on both sides of the (laughs) digestive system here.
0: I'm not going to sit here and let you badmouth Cheese, and the fact that I'm in Big Cheese's <laughs> pocket has absolutely nothing to do with it. <laughs> Let's get to the stocks on our radar this week. Our man behind the glass, Steve Broido, is back, and he's going to hit you with a question. Andy Cross, what are you looking at this Steve, week?
2: Steve, the hot IPO this week. Bill.com came out, and the stock did really well, up 60%. It's now valued more than $2 billion. They provide like business processing for small and mid-sized businesses, invoicing, payable, that kind of stuff. Really interested in this business, cloud-based, very friendly, and there are a lot of small and medium-sized businesses out there who continue to use paper-pushing initiatives, and they need to move into the digital space. So Bill.com can help them do
0: that. And the ticker symbol? B-I-L-L, Bill. Steve, question about Bill.com? So that's a pretty clever URL they got. What do you think they paid for it, just out
2: of
1: curiosity? <laughs> I'm assuming Bill,
0: somewhere, some Bill bought Bill.com and they had to buy it from him. Yeah, maybe true. I don't know, Steve-o. Jason Moser, what are you looking at this week?
1: Uh, Yeah, new one, I think, for our universe here. A company called Trimble, ticker is TRMB, and at its core, Trimble builds software that connects the physical and digital world, so clearly right up my alley. Uh, it, it does serve a number of different markets from construction and engineering to energy, aviation and beyond. And specifically, it's Trimble Connect that has me interested. Uh, that's their mixed reality platform. They've partnered with companies like Microsoft and Neurable and Magic Leap, among others. Uh, CEO Steve Berglund has been there since 1999 running the show, so i like to see leadership that's been there for a while. This is one that's on the uh, on the watch list here for our augmented reality service. Steve, question about Trimble? Um, what company are they trying to disrupt in this space? Well, very much uh, similar to what we're seeing from DeSalt Systems and from companies like Autodesk. Aaron Bush, what are you looking at this week?
3: I'm looking at Monster Beverage, ticker MNST, which is a super easy business to understand. They sell energy drinks, they make lots of money selling cans of liquid. <laughs> um, the, the, the stock has underperformed over the past five years or so, but I think now it's finally, it's finally at a point where it'll start outperforming again. The brand dominates in the U.S. They partnered with Coca-Cola to be able to tap into their global distribution system. That's clicking into gear. Both Europe and Asia are clocking in over 40% growth. Um, I think this is a business will be able to do double digits EPS growth going forward and where the price is at. I think it looks pretty compelling.
0: Steve, question about Monster Beverage. Seems like the world is trending
3: healthier. Uh, is Monster a healthy drink? <laughs> <laughs> uh, no, but believe it or not, energy drinks are still growing, something like ten percent as like uh, as a trend mm. around the world. So I'm not too worried about people shying away from Monster right now. You're
0: more worried about cheese eaters. Yeah, I'm really worried. Trimble, Monster Beverage, Bill. dot com. You got a stock you want to add to your watch list, Steve? I think Trimble. Let's go mm. with Trimble. Hey now. All right. Jason Moser, Aaron Bush, Andy Cross. Guys, thanks for being here. Thank, Thank you. you. Thanks, Chris. Up next, the conversation with best-selling author Bob Sutton. Stay right here, you're listening to Motley Fool Money. Hey! Welcome back to Motley Fool Money. I'm Chris Hill. For more than 30 years, Bob Sutton has taught at Stanford University. He's the author of several best-selling books, including Scaling Up Excellence, Getting to More Without Settling for Less. Last month at the Motley Fool's annual meeting, I talked with Bob in front of a live audience about what works and what doesn't work when it comes to scaling. So let's get into some of the things in the book. And, And one of the points that you make pretty quickly on is... The idea that if you're looking to spread excellence around, one of the most effective ways to do that right off the bat is to find the things that are negative and subtract Uh, those. So
4: there's a famous management book. Some of you may have heard of, I think the best-selling of all time, perhaps Good to Great by Jim Collins. So our mantra is it's the opposite. It's bad to great. So when you look at situations where you want to spread something good, the first order of business is to get rid of bad stuff. And, and if you want to go to some of the basic social psychology, you kind of think of some of the elements of your life. First of all, let's start with your personal relationships, because that's a good place to start. There's great uh, long-term studies that show that, the studies happen to be of long-term heterosexual married couples, but I think this works for everybody, that if you go below five to one, so every time you have a bad interaction with your partner, you don't make it up with one good interaction, things aren't going to last. So just as somebody who's been married and living with the same woman like virtually forever, as soon as I heard that research, I say to myself, if I've been bad, I have to be good five times in a row. So that five-to-one rule is very powerful. And, and, the, and then the other, the other sort of finding, more in the workplace, is there's good evidence in a small team if you've got a deadbeat, a jerk. We heard a the mention of jerk. I wrote a book called The No So that's the word I use. Um, But if you've got one person like that in your team, it brings down um, the effectiveness of your team by 30 or 40%. There's two reasons. One is bad behavior is really contagious. The other one, and just so maybe, maybe some of you have a bad team member in your team right now. What tends to happen is you spend more time dealing with that difficult person and less time actually doing the work. So if we fast forward to sort of scaling situations, if you look at um, what some of the most effective scalers do, I, one, we were talking about last night at dinner, Carlos Brito, who's the uh, CEO of InBev, which has bought virtually every beer company in the world just about now, Budweiser, Stella, and so on, his perspective is the first order of business is to get rid of the bad stuff so you can uh, make way for the good stuff. So, yeah, so bad is stronger than good. And, uh, and good is wonderful, but uh, a little bit of
0: bad can ruin a lot of good. So people can be fired. Yes. What is the process for looking at a suite of products or services and sort of beginning to analyze, okay, we're doing all of these things currently. Right. Should we maybe streamline these, get rid of some of these? Um, and that can apply to products, services, or even marketing messages. Well, so there's, to me, there's two parts of it. One is getting rid of the bad stuff. And some of you may know
4: this story that uh, when Larry Page took over as CEO, it was probably eight or 10 years ago, of Google, he actually went to the Wikipedia page to see all the different products. Because in the old days of Google, they were massively decentralized, and everybody could do whatever they wanted. They sort of have some guardrails now. And and he used the Wikipedia page to identify all the different sort of products that Google had. And most most of them, they were sort of like Walking Dead. They were zombie products. And he... So that's just the notion of getting rid of pure complexity. So to me, there's, there's two parts of that. Uh, one is just getting rid of bad stuff. So you've got destructive people, you've got products that are driving customers crazy, uh, you've got bad processes, that's part of the bad. And the other part, and this is a big part of scaling, is that just pure cognitive load. So we do all sorts of things in organizations to unwittingly put more weight on our mind. And the more weight that we have on our mind the harder it is for us to do what we think is right just because we're dragged down by it. So that's why Huggy Rao and I are really quite obsessed with organizational friction now.
0: You were talking before you used the word guardrails. Uh, This gets into another part of the book that I find very interesting, um, and not just because I was raised Catholic, Uh but the the whole concept of um, Catholicism versus Buddhism is something that companies, as they grow, uh, tend to wrestle with, shall we say, in terms of um, whether it's we've got one location and we're, you know, we're selling coffee and we're looking to open up 500 right. locations. Um, but I'm wondering if you can share a little bit about sure. sort of, so, uh, the struggles and the opportunities that companies have when they're wrestling with so, those so, two concepts. So,
4: so the Catholicism versus Buddhism, let me describe where that came from. In, in, in every organization we work with, this challenge, it's always there, it never goes away. It's an ongoing decision for management and everyone else. And, and, the, and the challenge is, do you do the same thing, the same way everywhere, or do you allow local variation? And just to tell you where the story came from, because it's got some investment twists. Uh, so I'm one of the founders of something called the Stanford D School, which uh, teaches innovation. It, in at Stanford, it's, it's a cross sort of university unit. And in the early days, there's a guy, and you can look him up. He's got an amazing web page. His name is um, is Michael Deering. His company is uh, Harrison Metal. His last job was he was head of eBay North America, and then he got weird and realized he was really good at talking to three or four people, and figuring out who to how to fund them and get them to 20 people. And if you go down the list of companies, you can look at Harrison Metal. He sold five companies to Twitter. He did master class, Harry's razors, some of you may use. He's been incredibly successful. So we're sitting there with Michael in the early days of the D school and he looks at us and he says, so are you going to be Catholics or Buddhists? And we look at him like, what the hell are you talking about? And he was raised a devout Catholic. And, and, And this point was, and it's a constant struggle, is do you allow people to do everything that they want and think is best for themselves and their team? or do you force some conformity? And the answer to it in any one situation is, well, you gotta figure out what works, because all all the evidence is that at least if you wanna scale fast in the beginning, at least having a playbook that people focus on, this was uh, key to the success of McDonald's in the early days, for example, certainly um, Home Depot and so on, but on average, what, what the research shows is that starting out with a playbook, a way that we usually do stuff, and a few um, guardrails are really important, and then kind of adjusting it as you go into new markets and hire new kinds of employees, then you've kind of got to change.
0: It seems that, like that would point to the importance on having a strong culture yes. and also being very clear about the types of people that you hire.
4: Yes, until it gets you to the point where you you just keep um, replicating everybody over and over again, and the world changes, and you end up having the wrong sorts of people. And uh, just to give you an example with Google, what, one of my students, Shona Brown, this this is what happens at an institution like Stanford. I've known Shona so long that I loaned her $500 once. She was number four at Google for 10 years. Uh, she has like $500 million. So. Uh, in the early days, Shona, who was actually kind of an uppity Stanford student, and she was a Rhodes Scholar and everything, which permanently infects her mind and not always in the best place. If she was here, I would say this, in front of her. And Shona was one of the big pushers in the early day of Google, because she has a PhD and was a Rhodes Scholar, that we're only going to hire absolutely the best top 1% of 1% of people at Google, especially people who have um, degrees from elite universities. And, and they kind of did this in the early days. But they figured out two things. So they had a real clear mindset. We're going to hire geniuses. And if you know about the early interview process at Google, they do 20 or 30 interviews and then not give you an offer. They had a very bad reputation. So they do all this heavy screening. But that worked great in the early days, or at least well enough to build the company. But then they figured out two things, which is that you don't need a Rhodes Scholar 4.0 genius from one of the three elite universities in the world to do everything in an organization you really don't. And then some of you may also know that Google has done a bunch of research where they have shown that there's no relationship between the grades that somebody gets as an undergraduate and how good of a programmer they become. The correlation is zero.
0: One of the things you write about in the book and uh, you've written about uh, more recently um, is sort of the thought exercise around time travel. Right. essentially imagine, you know, it comes up in the book with, um, with the Bridgewater Academy, uh-huh. um, but just sort of the idea of stopping and f- trying to figure out, wait, this thing that we're doing right now, what does it look like when it's 50, 100 times larger, or we have 50 or 100 times as many locations? And it seems like to the extent that you can pull that off, that's time well spent.
4: So, so let me talk a little bit about, about time travel. There, there's a, a, a bunch of research that shows one of the great things about human beings is we're capable of looking back to the past and also imagining uh, what it's like from the future. And one of the most effective decision-making tools is something called a premortem. So a premortem is you imagine it's a year from now, and in particular, you imagine that things are totally screwed up, and you figure out what happened instead of sort of um, coming up with a list of here's the things that lead to success, here's the things that lead to failure, and, and, uh, and, and just to give you a, a, a specific example for career stuff, my co-author Huggy has done, it's a randomized experiment with a large software firm, and what he did with new hires was he had them do a failure premortem, and the failure premortem was it's six months from now and you're a member of this organization, a very successful, large software firm, and everything has gone wrong, uh, you've been fired, uh, you can't even get another job, Like everything, what, what, wow. what went wrong? And, and so he has them do the, the, and they did success premortems too. It turns out failure premortems are more um, powerful, and uh, this wasn't given to management or anything. So, but what happens when you, when you look down the line a couple of years, that a much larger proportion of people who did failure premortems got um, really large raises, raises over 10% than the people who were in the control conditions. And, and so the power of a pre-mortem when you're making a decision, such as a merger or rolling out uh, new software stuff, is that, uh, is that y- you don't have all these excuses. You're just looking back from the future and trying to figure out what went wrong.
0: Coming up, more with Bob Sutton. So stay right here. You're listening to Motley Fool Money. All right, before we get back to Bob Sutton, quick shout out to LinkedIn, because when it comes to finding candidates that are truly meant for your business, urgency, we like urgency, but it can actually be your enemy. That's why LinkedIn is the place to post your job. LinkedIn Jobs screens candidates with the hard and soft skills you're looking for, things like creativity, adaptability, collaboration. LinkedIn looks beyond the work skills and puts your job post in front of qualified candidates who match your business requirements perfectly. It's no wonder a person is hired every eight seconds with LinkedIn. So, visit linkedin.com fool and get $50 off your first job post. Again, that's linkedin.com slash fool. Terms and conditions
2: apply.
0: Welcome back to Motley Fool Money. I'm Chris Hill. Let's get back to my conversation in front of a live audience with Bob Sutton about his best selling book, Scaling Up Excellence. What has been the reaction to the book from different organizations that you've met with? I mean, the book came out five years ago, Uh um, and I'm curious if it's been sort of an ongoing parade of people saying, yes, everything that happened in this book is happening to us, or if you've gotten a reaction that surprised you. So there are certain universal elements in the book. And, And so we've
4: done talks and worked with everybody, well, Google the Girl Scouts, the Gates Foundation, lots of investment firms, lots of nonprofits. So we, we work with every kind of organization, at least that 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 um, that I can I can think of, and and the reaction is is generally positive. But one of the things that that people will say, and I, I think that, that this is worth talking about, is is that they will talk about the notion that oh, you present all these cases of organizations where it's so great. But in my company, we're actually, or my nonprofit, we're actually screwed up. So so we're not great like that. Maybe I should move somewhere else and, and do something different. And, and, if, and one of the main bits of advice that I give here is that in general, if you go to another organization, and I'm talking about organizations that are scaling well, not ones that are scaling badly, on a day-to-day basis, things always seem screwed up to the people who are inside of it. And so, so I, and, and, we were just talking about Amazon. I would not want to work at Amazon. That's a kind of a brutal place to work. Uh, Netflix, which is a company I work quite well, they're obviously really, really hard on employees. They, hire, they fire people without performance improvement plans. That's one thing they're really proud of. Uh, so, and, and the best example I have of this is I gave a talk um, at a large law firm, and um, um, King and Spalding's the name of the law firm. This isn't a, a secret. And the way that large law firms work is when they have a partner retreat, they have affinity groups, so they'll have a breakfast for, I don't know, the lawyers who went to Harvard, the gay lawyers, the women lawyers. This group had the Grass is Browner Club. And what the Grass is Browner Club are the people who quit King and Spalding, and they came back because it sucked even worse at the place that they went to. The point is, and this comes from my dear friend David Kelly, the founder of the Stanford D School, the main founder, and also an innovation firm called IDEO, is that he talks about uh, the notion that uh, when you're doing something that original, life is always messy, there's always setback, it's always confusing, and it always feels worse in the moment. When you look back on it or you look ahead, it might be better. But So so that's one lesson that I think has has sort of come out, that if you think that things are better somewhere else, it might be, but usually it isn't.
0: To go back to your book, one of the things I was struck by, despite the fact that scaling up in an excellent way is a ground war, it can be a slog, Mm -hmm. it can take a lot of time, there can be a lot of friction within the organization, Uh Um, and yet there is this through line, of optimism from the people yep. uh, in the book. As someone who is a a fan of business and rooting for businesses, it was great to see that level of optimism from people, even when they are battling with significant challenges within their own organization. Did that surprise you at all that people have a heart? Well, well, that level so, well so, so the optimism didn't shock
4: me that much, but there's a nuance that I think is worth talking about. Because, so, so if you look at, there's a guy named Danny Kahneman who won the Nobel Prize for sort of inventing bo- modern behavioral economics, and Danny will argue, and Danny's really a pessimistic person, by the way, by the way uh, his, his co-author Amos Traversky died, he was the optimist, but, but Danny will argue that overconfidence is the worst thing that any human being can suffer from, that's the worst of all the cognitive biases, but what I would say is that the way that people who are good at scaling and organizational growth and leadership are is uh, they have s- strong opinions, weakly held, or they're confident, but not really sure. So, so what that means is that if you're around them and they announce a new product, or we're going to open a new location or something, that they're really, really optimistic and get everybody all fired up about how they're going to do it, but at the same time, they're constantly looking for signs that things aren't going quite right and they have to be tweaked, or. They get rid of the whole thing all at once. So the, the great Andy Grove, who some people will say is the greatest Silicon Valley executive of all time, who really made the modern Intel, he was kind of famous for that, which was he'd be completely optimistic and, uh, it, it, till the moment that he, he fired people who got rid of a product. He was just that sort of person. So this idea about having strong opinions, weakly held, or being confident but I'm not really sure... That's the kind of thing that, to me, makes for great executives and great scaling, because th- th- there's this kind of restlessness. It's, it's kind of the hallmark of great filmmakers at Pixar, too, that, yeah, it's, it's going okay, but I don't want to hear about um, what's great about it. I want to hear about what's wrong and how I can make it better. And that, and that sort of mindset of, yes, the, we're gonna, it's going to be great in the end, but right now we've got we to gotta fix this stuff in front of us to make it even better. To me, that's different. Than just, oh, we're just all so brilliant and I only want to hear good news. To me, that's a that's that's it's more nuanced than that.
0: We are all here for this event with the mindset uh-huh. of scaling up our company in an excellent way and our teams in an excellent way. So my final question is: what advice do you have for us as individuals?
4: So so one of the things that happens in a company like this, and I've worked with a lot of companies that scale really fast. Uh, Facebook and uh, and Uber were just insane in this regard. So what ends up happening is it, it ends up being difficult to have one us when you have a whole bunch of people sort of coming and going constantly. And one of the things that makes that worse in particular, it, it, and this certainly um, happens where I work, is that the people have been there for a long time and, and have worked together for a long time, they all tend to conglomerate. And they tend to cross their arms and look at the newcomers and say, who the hell are these people? And so I guess my uh, basic advice is try to talk to somebody who you don't know or don't know very well. Don't just stand and talk to the same people you always talk to. I know it's great to see old friends, but uh, for your good and the good of the organization, I think that, uh, that, that people are the best learners, they talk to people who are different and people they don't know. Because otherwise, when you talk to people you know, you just hear the same story and nobody ever challenges your worldview. And also, for having one Motley Fool, I think that that's part of the interpersonal path.
0: Bob Sutton's book is Scaling Up Excellence, Getting to More Without Settling for Less. It's a bestseller for a reason, so, you know, check it out when you get a chance. Hey, two quick things before we wrap up this week. First, have you checked out The Motley Fool's new mobile game? It's called Investor Island. It's free to download, and it's fun to play. You can find it in any app store. Just look for Investor Island. Second, it's the holiday season, and one thing on our wish list here at Motley Fool Money is a little help from you. We're trying to reach as many people as possible and help the world invest better. And whenever someone rates and reviews our show on platforms like Apple Podcasts or Stitcher, it actually helps other people find the show. So if you enjoy the show and you have a few seconds, please consider giving us a rating and review. It helps us out. We really appreciate it. So thanks. That's going to do it for this week's show. Our engineer is Steve Broido. Our producer is Mac Greer. The show is mixed by Dan Boyd. I'm Chris Hill. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next week.